Please be seated. And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 16 through 21 this evening. The sermon is entitled, For God So Loved the World. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's holy word? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But everyone who does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you've taught us in your word that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So we pray that the light of your word would enlighten our paths this evening, that you by your spirit would enlighten our hearts, our minds, and grant that we might receive a saving understanding of the word that's before us, that we might receive from the Lord Jesus Christ, His teaching about the heavenly things, indeed the deep things of God. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Well, beloved, this evening we continue our series through the gospel according to John. Over the past couple of weeks, we've noted that one thing that makes John's gospel unique is his narration of several rather lengthy discourses or teachings from Jesus in more intimate settings. In our text for this evening, we continue with the first of those discourses as the Lord Jesus Christ teaches a teacher of Israel, a man named Nicodemus, about the nature and necessity of the new birth. In verses 1 through 8, we saw the misunderstanding of Nicodemus and the teaching of Jesus to correct that misunderstanding. And then last time, in verses 9 through 15, we saw the challenge of Nicodemus to Jesus' teaching. You remember he asked how can these things be? And Jesus' apology or defense of his teaching in which he made arguments from authority as the only begotten Son, he is fully God. From access as the only begotten Son, he has special access to the Father and the Spirit. And from accomplishment as the only begotten Son, he alone through his suffering unto death secures the new birth for sinners." And during his defense, Jesus, if you remember, distinguished between earthly things and heavenly things, saying in verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? As we noted last time, what Jesus means by earthly things are the metaphors that he's just used to describe the work of the Spirit, images from the visible, natural world namely childbirth, water, and wind, whereas the heavenly things 
are the deep things of God, which those earthly metaphors, to which those earthly metaphors refer, which they signify. Those deep things of God, of course, are the Father's sending of the Son and the Spirit for us and for our salvation. Or we might say the temporal missions of the Son and the Spirit, which reveal their eternal processions within the Holy Trinity with a new fullness and clarity. In our text for this evening, Jesus finally discloses those heavenly things to Nicodemus. He finally discloses those heavenly things to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is experiencing a privilege beyond measure. He has God in the flesh standing before him, explaining the heavenly things that only God can explain. He teaches Nicodemus with fullness and clarity the way the gospel, the way the good news that God saves sinners is rooted in God's Trinitarian nature. And the Lord Jesus does this in two complementary ways. The first we see in verses 16 through 18, where we see a focus on the saving love of God. And the second we see in verses 19 through 21, where we see a focus on the condemning judgment of God. So the saving love of God and the condemning judgment of God. Let's begin in that first section there, verses 16 through 18, where we see the saving love of God. Look again at verse 16. The text says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's becoming less and less of a thing today, but when I was young, when I was a child, I remember watching sporting events on television and seeing people holding up signs that read nothing but John 3, 16. It was the era of Billy Graham and the evangelistic crusade. Such crusades were really modern expressions of the big tent revivals of the early to middle 1800s on the American frontier, what theologians sometimes call the Second Great Awakening, which if you really look into it, it it wasn't that great. Graham's team drew thousands of people into large stadiums to hear simple messages about the gospel in the interest of winning converts through decisions. Given the short window of time that Graham had at each location, rather than preaching expositionally, lectio continua, through whole books of the Bible and digging deeply into systematic and biblical theology, he preached rather small passages that summarized the gospel in one or two sentences. I don't say all that in order to disparage what Billy Graham did. I think the Lord used him in remarkable ways in the lives of people. But it's just, it was just a different thing. John 3.16 was one of those passages, which I think is why it's so well known today. But what's not as well known about this verse is the uncertainty among commentators about who exactly is speaking. 
Of course, all Christian commentators believe the Holy Spirit is speaking, no doubt. This is the inspired Word of God. But at this stage in the chapter, at this stage in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, is John narrating what Jesus says to Nicodemus, or is he adding his own commentary to what Jesus has just said to Nicodemus? The difficulty lies in the fact that the original Greek has no conventional markers to set apart quotations. All we have to go on is what's being said, so the context of what's being said. That makes identifying the beginning and end of quotations a bit difficult sometimes. Some, like Leon Morris, believe Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus ends with verse 15, and John's commentary begins with verse 16. Others, like uh, the great Protestant reformer John Calvin and Herman Ritterboss, believe Jesus' teaching continues through verse 21. That's the traditional view, and that's my view. I believe that Jesus continues to speak to Nicodemus all the way through 21. And so the Lord Jesus now transitions from His appeal to earthly things, that is, childbirth, water, and wind, to the deep things of God, to the heavenly things, beginning with His special relationship to the Father. It doesn't get any more heavenly than the relationship between the Father the Son, and the Spirit. What does Jesus' teaching about the new birth have to do with ultimately? It has to do with the saving love of God, which He has demonstrated to the world in the sending of His Son. For God so loved the world, Jesus says, Now, with the word God, Jesus specifically intends to signify the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity. And so we might rephrase what he says thusly, for God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, the Greek word that's translated only begotten in the King James Version and New King James Versions functions adjectivally, modifying the word son. The same word is translated with a mere only in the ESV. I didn't read it that way. I think that translation is wrong. I think that it ought to be translated only begotten. Now, to be sure, the the trimmed down version is certainly possible but I don't believe it's preferable. As we've already seen in verses, in chapter 1 and verse 14 and verse 18, where the word appears uh, in John's gospel for the first time, the apostle John uses that same word, but in verse 18, he doesn't use it to modify the word son, but the word God. And that's where it becomes a little tricky. If we translate that word with the mere only, then what we're left with is what you see in your ESV translation, which again, I don't mean to disparage the ESV, I use the ESV. No translation's perfect though. Then what you see in the ESV when it says only there 
The text says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And so, in that case, John is distinguishing between God on the one hand and the only God on the other hand, which is, I think, confusing at best. How, how can there possibly be a distinction between God and the only God? But if we translate it with only begotten, it makes perfect sense. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In that case, the distinction is, is between God and the only begotten God. That is, God the Father and God the Son. And that makes perfect sense. The Father is unbegotten and unproceeding God. The Son is only begotten God, begotten from the Father before all worlds. What Jesus is saying in verse 16 is this, if we dig to the bottom of the purpose of God and the salvation of sinners, we reach His love, His love. For God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. All of it, all of it from beginning to end, all of our salvation from beginning to end is sourced in and sustained by the love of God, which is another way of saying it's God's work by which He seeks the well-being of His beloved, His elect people. That's ultimately what's behind the saving purpose of God. It's like digging a well. You dig down deep, 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 and eventually you get to the source. You get to the water source. What is that? It's the love of God, the love of God. You may have heard the gospel explained a little differently before. Perhaps you've heard the gospel explained in this way. The Father was really angry with sinners, and so He sent His Son, and His Son loves us and is therefore able through His atoning work to change the Father's mind such that the Father now loves us too. That's wrong. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God the Father, out of love for us, sent His Son that through the Son's atoning work, we who had rebelled against Him in our sin might be reconciled to Him unto everlasting life and communion with Him. The gospel is about the love of God that saves us from the justice of God. There's where the anger of God comes in. But that's not an anger that's the Father's anger that the Son has to come and fix. No. The anger of God is the anger of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's the justice of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit together. So the gospel is about the love of God that saves us from the justice of God through the grace of God. And each of those divine attributes, His love, His justice, and His grace, belong to the being of God and therefore to each person of the Holy Trinity equally. Jesus describes this divine love as being directed toward the world, toward the world. For God so loved the world, he says. Now, much has been written by those debating predestination and election about the meaning of the word world. Does John mean everyone without exception? That is, every single individual 
in the world, or does he mean everyone without distinction, every kind of person, whether Jew or Gentile? Now, to know what John means, we have to consider his usage of the word throughout his writings. That's the way good interpretation happens. You first consider the usage of a term, of a, of a concept in the writings of the human author, and when there are multiple writings, you have a wealth of resources to, to which to appeal. And when we look at the way that John uses the word world throughout his gospel and throughout his three epistles, it becomes clear that he means the Gentiles out there. The Gentiles out there. Now, that's most certainly the way Nicodemus would have understood Jesus. In fact, to Nicodemus, what Jesus now said, says would, would have been just as shocking as his teaching about the Holy Trinity. In Nicodemus' ears, the word world would have signified those Gentiles out there. For example, the Romans who are oppressing us. They're the world, whereas the Jews are God's covenant people. Jesus makes that paradigm, or takes that paradigm, I should say, and turns it on its head, clarifying that while men may be visibly set apart as members of the church, they may be born of water or of the flesh, as he said back in verses 5 and 6, and in that sense, they may be out of the world Nonetheless, apart from the effectual call, apart from the new birth, everyone remains spiritually in the world under the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. And so how is a person saved out of the world? How is a person born of the Spirit? Jesus' answer, answer is here in the text. By the love of God. The source ultimately is the love of God to send His Son to accomplish our salvation, and then the love of God and the Father and the Son sending the Spirit to apply that same salvation to us. As 1 John chapter 4 and verses 9 through 10 says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God is the fountain of our salvation. Something else to notice about the way John uses the word world, this is actually one of the climactic moments, I think, in John's gospel. It's associated with the usage of that word. In John uh, chapters 13 through 16, we see what's historically been called the upper room discourse. And in that discourse, it's one of the lengthier discourses of John's gospel. In fact, it's the lengthiest discourse of Jesus in all the gospels. And Jesus gets into the deep things of God, the heavenly things, the relation between Father, Son, and Spirit and particularly the work of the Spirit, which is coming after His ascension into heaven. And in that passage, the Lord Jesus teaches His disciples as He prepares them for what they're about to endure. He teaches them that the world will hate them. The world will hate them. 
Now in a Jewish year, they would hear that and say, well, of course the world hates us. Right? They're the enemies of God. They're not God's covenant people. We are God's covenant people. But Jesus says the world will hate you. And then he goes on to explain what that hatred will look like. And he says, they, speaking of the world, they will throw you out of the synagogues and put you to death. Now, who's in the synagogues? There would have been some Gentile converts in the synagogues, but the synagogues were mostly Jewish covenant members, you see. And so, what you see happening in that upper room discourse is Jesus is identifying the covenant people of God, those visibly set apart unto God by circumcision, by the various uh, gifts that God gave to His visible church in the old covenant period. He's saying, in their rejection of me, they're exposed as the world. They're actually the world. Now, that would have been shocking. Shocking for the disciples to hear. Scandalous. But it was true. And the same thing, this is the same thing he's teaching Nicodemus. That love, the love of God, which is the fountain of our salvation, is revealed chiefly in the Father's giving of His only begotten Son. The word that's translated gave in the passage, He gave His only begotten Son, doesn't simply mean sent, but gave up. It's the language of offering. Jesus is now filling, filling out the deeper work of God, which was signified by Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, which he referenced in verse 15. As John said earlier in chapter 1 in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so what does Jesus mean when he tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus is very quick to clarify, just like later in John chapter 10, when he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is the will of my Father, that I lay down my life for my sheep. He's saying the same thing to Nicodemus. My being lifted up from the earth, my being crucified is not because an enemy triumphs over me, but it is because the Father loves the world. And so He gives His Son as a sacrificial offering, a willing sacrificial offering for the salvation of His elect people in the world. That they would be redeemed out of the world unto Him. The Son took upon Himself the curse of sin and death that we deserved, so that when we look to Him by faith, just as Israel looked to the bronze serpent, we will not perish, but have eternal life. Each of us is owed death. Each of us deserves to perish, but God, out of His special saving love for us, gave His only begotten Son so that the Son might suffer and perish in our place as our substitute so that we would be freed from that same suffering unto eternal life. The incarnate Son is the last Adam who undoes what Adam did 
by suffering the covenant curse for us and does what Adam failed to do by obeying his father perfectly and therefore meriting the covenant blessing for us. And the greatness of God's love is revealed in the worth of that which he gave. The greatness of God's love is revealed in the worth of that which he gave. This is why young men, when they fall in love, think to themselves, how can I express this love? Let me go buy a rock that someone has arbitrarily determined must be of great value that I might give it to my wife, my future wife, so that she sees just how great my love is for her. I use the word arbitrary there carefully, but young men, come talk to me. There are ways around this. I'm, I'm certain there must be ways around this. But this is what God is doing. This is why the deep things of God matter, you see. This is why God could not have said, my people deserve the stroke of my judgment. And so I'll have someone go, an ordinary human, and lift up a sledgehammer and bring it down on a rock and smash the rock. And that will be my, the way I redeem them from sin and death. Why can't that be how God redeems us from sin and death? There are many reasons to answer that question, but the deepest reason is here in the text. The deepest reason is because that would be an insufficient display of the love of God. The greatness of God's love is revealed in the worth of that which He gave. Because Jesus is the only begotten Son who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, when He tells Nicodemus, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, what He's saying is He gave the most infinitely worthy gift he could possibly give. You see? Christ is the diamond without measure. Without measure. How deep is God's love for His elect people? It is God. His love for His elect people is Himself. That's how deep it is. He gave himself for you. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now later in chapter 9 and verse 39, Jesus will teach saying, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see or who see may become blind. So how can he now say he wasn't sent into the world to condemn the world? Again, we must remember the one to whom Jesus is speaking and how he would have thought about the relationship between the Messiah and the Gentile world out there. 
Again, so, so what Jesus now says in verse 17 helps us make sense of what he meant in verse 16 by the word world. The view of the Pharisees was that the Messiah was coming into the world for the very purpose of condemning the world and making all things right, putting down the Romans so that the people of God could be exalted. The kingdom of David would be restored, you see. In other words, they missed the fact that the Messiah would come in two stages, in two stages, the first of which would be marked by humility as a suffering servant. They wanted the glory before the suffering, the resurrection before the cross. And so Jesus makes it clear that that is not what he was sent to do at his first coming. While Jesus being in the world necessarily involves a judgment as he's about to teach us, he first comes not in glory to issue a final judgment, to condemn, but in humility to save. That brings us to verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus now returns to what he just said in verse 16, namely that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, he says, whoever, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's the same thing as saying has eternal life. Back in chapter, or pardon me, back in uh, uh, the year 1618, the Arminian remonstrance within the Continental Reformed Church who brought their protest to the Synod of Dort appealed to this very text, this very whoever, in order to defend their rejection of the biblical doctrine of predestination. They took it to refer to the possibility of salvation for all. But that's not what Jesus means in this text. Jesus isn't teaching that salvation is available to whoever. He's teaching that any who are in the world and believe in Him, whoever they are, will be saved. Of course, he later clarifies that only his elect will believe, saying in chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me, who is that? That's the elect. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So all those who believe in him are not condemned for their sin. Why? Because he suffered the condemnation they deserve in their place as their substitute. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned in his sin already. And if he remains in the estate of sin and misery, allied with the evil world system all the way to the end, he will be condemned at the final judgment. There are some in the church today who believe everyone is given a free pass until they hear the gospel, and then if they reject the gospel, they're condemned. Not only does that undermine Christian missions, because why in the world would we go and tell someone about Jesus if that's going to mean they have a chance of going to hell if they reject it, whereas if they never heard, they would immediately go to heaven. Not only is it a rejection of Christian missions, it's also a rejection of the clear teaching of Scripture. We see it right here. Jesus says those who don't believe in Him are condemned already. They're condemned already. 
It's not through the rejection of Him that they're condemned, but they're born into the world condemned. Look at verses 19 through 21. We get to the condemning judgment of God. Verse 19, the text continues, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So, Jesus further explains the judgment of condemnation to which He's just referred. Although He was not sent into the world to condemn the world, but in humility to suffer for the salvation of those in the world, nonetheless, the condemning judgment of God against the world for its sinful rebellion is vindicated through Him. The nature of sin is hatred toward God. Or to put it another way, sin is the rejection of the love of God. That's what makes sin a tragedy. And so if the sending of the Son for the salvation of the world is the greatest expression of that love, and the world rejects it, then the sinfulness of sin is exposed, and the judgment of God against it is vindicated through the Son's messianic mission. Jesus refers to His own incarnation as light shining into darkness. And so, once again, He appeals to earthly things, to visible natural images, to describe heavenly things. This is why John begins his gospel with the same earthly images, saying in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is a fitting metaphor because the judgment that Jesus has in view at this stage, this is the judgment. The judgment is one of consequence. It's one of consequence. It is a consequence of the light shining into the darkness that the darkness is exposed as antithetical to the light and therefore deserving of condemnation. And notice the deeper reason that Jesus gives here. Why does the light's shining into the world result in judgment? He says, because the people loved the darkness rather than the light. In other words, sinners love themselves and their sin more than God. God's great love is revealed in what He gives, as we've already discussed, His great love is revealed in what He gives, namely His only begotten Son. The world's world's great love is revealed in what it refuses to give up, namely sin. And so we see the world loves the darkness. It loves its sin. This is why we read in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, we love because He first loved us. Apart from the love of God being effectually applied to our hearts, shining into our hearts, as Paul says in Romans 5, we would all continue to love our sin and hate God till the end. Look at verses 20 through 21. Jesus continues in His teaching to Nicodemus, saying, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God. Jesus sets up one final contrast between those who hate Him and those who love Him. Those who do wicked things, in other words, those who practice sin under the power of sin habitually, hate Him and do not come to Him. 
And why? Why is that the case? Well, using the light metaphor, Jesus speaks of exposure. Exposure. In other words, the wicked who refuse to believe in Jesus are motivated by what they think is self-preservation. They know they deserve God's condemnation, and so they vainly flee His holy presence. But those who do what is true, in other words, those who have been set free from sin's power by the effectual call, by the new birth, come to the light. In other words, they believe in Jesus. And why? Why do they do that? So that it may be clearly seen, Jesus says, that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, so that the goodness And the power of God might be clearly perceived in the things that they do. So that the love of God would be glorified in their salvation. Here is the heart of the heart change God performs in those to whom He grants the new birth. What is the change? They no longer love the darkness. They no longer love their sin. But they love God. And they want to see God glorified. So they don't come to Him. They don't come to Him and believe in Him going, look at what I did. Look how wonderful I am. But they come to Him that their works might be seen as clearly having been carried out in God. That others might see that it's the goodness, the mercy, the love of God that has saved them, that God might be glorified in their salvation. Beloved, in our text for this evening, we've seen the Lord Jesus taking Nicodemus into the deep things of God. The gospel of life and salvation in Him is a revelation of the Trinitarian nature of God. In the Son's temporal mission, the Father's giving of His only begotten Son. We see the eternal procession of the Son from the Father. We also see the greatness of God's love for us because the Father and the Son are the one true and living God. The Father's giving of His Son is, in one sense, God's giving of Himself for us. God shows the greatness of His love to us in what He gives us for our salvation. And He gives us Himself. He gives us Himself. This is the glory of the biblical religion. The glory of Christianity. God does not save us that we might somehow reach some spiritual island surrounded by tiki torches and good food and every pleasure you can imagine. This is the heaven of the Muslims. This is the heaven of the Muslims. How tragic is that? You know what's missing? What's missing? It's a lot missing. But at the bottom, what's missing is God is wholly other. Christian God is not wholly other. He is wholly other, but He's also with us. He is with us in the sending of His Son for our salvation. 
The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, took upon Himself our humanity. And He remains a human being like you and me forever. Forever. You know what that means? You're going to be able to look into the very face of God when you see Him in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? God has given Himself for you. This is the depth of His love for you. He has saved you from His justice, by His grace, and the root of it all is His great love for you. He has saved you not just from hell, but unto Himself, that you might have Him, that He might be your God, and that you might be His child. Have you, have you experienced that love? Has that love changed your heart? Because it's only, it's only when you experience that love that you have the capacity then to actually love God in return and to truly love others. There's no other way to do it. Has the light shined in your heart such that you've fled to it and taken hold of it and said, yes, I love you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for me. Or do you continue to retreat to the dark, you see? Saying, I don't want to lose my sin. I don't know if I can trust that God. You can trust Him. You can trust Him. You know you can trust Him because of the worth of what He gave for you. He gave Himself, you see. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank You for a time to sit under the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as he spoke to Nicodemus 2,000 years ago about the deep things of God. And Father, we pray that you would take these teachings and apply them to our hearts, that they might be like seed falling into fertile soil, producing much fruit to your glory. I pray that if there are any here who haven't yet fled to the light, that it might be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God, that you might grant that they would flee to Him this evening. That they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would receive Your great love. They would receive You and be saved. For I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.